And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made your yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to his people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, and then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old man gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to these people who said to you, Your father made your yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Silonite, sorry, Philip, (laughs) to Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Thank you, Elaine. You did great. You can take a seat. I did warn Elaine. I said it's the last verse is a doozy, but I believe in you. It's good to be together, isn't it? I'm so glad you're here. So glad to worship with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just the chance to be able to meet with our church family and to continue uh, to rejoice over you, just as the angels sung your praises uh, some 2,000 years ago over shepherds. God, we want to continue that as we sing praises. God, as, um, as you came and lived among us, died for us, resurrecting uh, to prove once and for all you are truly King of kings and Lord of lords, we uh, come today uh, celebrating you as the King, celebrating that your birth in a manger was just the beginning of an, an amazing life, uh, a life lived Uh, as one who is truly royal, truly kingly. And God, as we uh, continue to look at these Old Testament kings, may we we better know you, better know what it's like, uh, who who you are and what you are like, uh, so that we may worship you and we may follow you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, If you've been around church Christmas time, there's probably a number of traditional Christmas scriptures you, you are used to hearing. Many of those are in the first couple of chapters of Matthew, first couple, couple of chapters of Luke. There's also a, a very famous prophecy from Isaiah that 
Lily read to us a moment ago uh, from Isaiah chapter 9. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called. And then we get these four beautiful names about this coming Messiah and what he would be like. He is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. Each of those apply to Jesus as he is born to that, a, couple hundred, a few hundred years after Isaiah spoke that 2,000 years ago. And we praise God for each of those things. We need peace in the world, do we not? We need a, a, one who, a, a father who is not just temporary, but who is everlasting. And we need a God who is strong, who is mighty. And we need a wonderful counselor. Whether you uh, and I like to admit it, we need advice sometimes, right? We need somebody who is wiser than us, who is good and who is good at what they do to give us godly, wise wisdom or discernment on a certain pathway. Uh, I think as we, as we kind of grow out of adolescence, adolescence into adulthood, we may think, oh, I, I'm an adult now. I, d- I don't need advice. I'm now the one giving advice. And yet, it seems that the, the older I get, the longer I live, the more I realize I actually still need advice and counsel and wisdom. If you think you don't need that, just wait till the next time your car breaks down, right? Then, oh, I need somebody who really knows cars. Or if you know cars, then wait till you have a, a medical problem. I really need a doctor. I really need somebody who knows their way around this specific problem. Or just wait till you have kids and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And you go ask other parents. They're like, join the club. We have no idea what we are doing. Financial advisors, tax consultants, we go to all kinds of people seeking advice, seeking counselors, mental and emotional health. We need people who can help us care for our mental and emotional needs. We need good counselors. And we come to the Lord knowing above all, He he is the, the, the one who is the counselor above all, the wonderful counselor. Today we're looking at a king who had a choice about who he would trust to be his wonderful counselor. Who was going to give him advice? Who was going to give him the right path forward? As we look at his, his decision, we can understand better what it looks like for us to come to Christ, who is our wonderful counselor. This Advent season leading up to Christmas, we've been looking at some of the stories of Old Testament kings and how they point us to the King of Kings, Jesus, King Jesus. We started with two positive examples, with Solomon and Hezekiah, both who, of course, are sinners like all of us are. But we looked at good moments, positive moments in their lives. As Solomon built the temple and he enjoyed, delighted in the presence of God among his people, we celebrate at Christmas, God is Emmanuel, God with us. Last week we looked at Hezekiah and as he's waiting and anticipating in the invasion of a foreign army, and just like at Advent, we are waiting on God and waiting on Christ to return We said, what did he do while he waited? He waited in faith. And we know he had faith because he prayed. He practiced his faith as he prayed. Two positive examples help us to understand what Christ is like in Christmas as we anticipate him. But there's more often than not negative examples in the kings. So we had to pick at least one. And that's why I come today to Rehoboam. Rehoboam teaches us about wisdom and about wonderful counselors because of his lack of understanding of wisdom and wonderful counselors. He points us to Christ in ways that he is different than Christ, not like Christ. Today's story comes at a crucial moment, a crucial juncture in the history of the people of Israel. 
A couple weeks ago, we talked about Solomon built the temple. It was kind of a high point in Israel's history. But by the end of Solomon's life, we've mentioned that he begins to make all these agreements with foreign nations by, by marrying women from those nations, but then unfortunately even worshiping the gods of those nations. And so the, the, the reign of Solomon already is on the downward trajectory by the time his son Rehoboam takes over in leadership. When Solomon died, Rehoboam becomes king. And I just imagine how hard of a job he had. Imagine being the guy who has to follow the King David and the King Solomon to be the next king of Israel. Like, no pressure, buddy, but David, you know the whole Goliath thing, the stones, you know? You know the whole thing where he had to deal with all this stuff with Saul and he was patient and all this time wandering in the wilderness and surviving. You know the whole uh, taking over all this land and having this incredible peace. And oh, by the way, he was a poet and a musician. Now, all these psalms that he wrote, that's your grandfather, all right? No, no pressure. But Solomon, oh yeah, it gets, gets easier here. He was just the wisest man who ever lived. And you have to follow after him. And he built even more things. He built the temple and an incredible palace and expanded and built cities. And so, yeah, no pressure, bud. Just take over and be the next king over Israel. Those would be some pretty tough shoes to fill. And it's hard in one way, but in another way, they actually laid out a pretty clear playbook about what it means to be a good and wise king. You didn't actually have to be the most poetic guy or write the, the most po uh, proverbs for people to be the best king you were supposed to be. No, they laid out the playbook was simply this. Be obedient to God. Follow God. Worship the one true God. And if you get that right, then the other things will follow. Trust God enough, treasure Him enough, and then God will take care of the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Rehoboam had a very, some very tough shoes to fill, but they had laid out the plan and said, look, this is, this is how you do it. Follow God. But he didn't follow that pattern very well. When Rehoboam came to the throne, the question before him was, will he seek the Lord? Will he learn from the mistakes of his forefathers? Or will he follow in the problems they created? He didn't just follow in the same problems. He multiplied the problems. And so we get to 1 Kings chapter 12 in the process of this transition. And we recognize Rehoboam messes up pretty much an early, uh, one of the first opportunities he has to mess up. In the kingdom of Israel at the time, it was made up of 12 different tribes. Maybe somewhat like, you know, our first part of our country had 13 colonies. We'll compare it to that loosely for now. And so he became king in the capital city of Jerusalem. That's where Solomon lived. That's where his son was. So he becomes king. But in order to kind of establish his, room, he his rule, he travels to the north to a different part. Maybe like uh, one of the first presidents of the United States being in Washington, D.C. But he's got to go make a visit to New York because that's the big city. And that's where it represents kind of a, a central hub for the northern part of the country. So he goes up to a city called Shechem, which was also a place where Joshua had, had, had uh, reinstated a covenant with the Lord. So a symbolic place, a place of unity among the northern tribes. This seems like a good place to go, and they're going to recognize his kingship, the new king to follow King Solomon as they gather together in Shechem. And as the people come together, they have just, just one request for the new king, Rehoboam. 1 Kings 12.4, they say, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. 
You might not pick it up as you read through the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings, but Solomon did a whole lot of work, and he didn't do it all by himself. He probably was not the guy out at the rock quarry digging out all these stones by hand and transporting them in order to build the temple. His palace was one of the most amazing uh, architectural things in the time period, but he probably wasn't the one working late nights to make it all just right. As the cities expanded, as they took over more and more land and built city walls, all these things required an enormous construction effort. And the people of Israel had been the ones carrying all these stones on their backs to make all these things happen. So when the next king comes along, they say, hey, we have a, we have a favor to ask. Can we take a break? Can we just slow down just a little bit on the, on the expansion programs? Because we're really wearing thin on being able to handle all these projects. But they make a promise. They say, listen, you're, you're the king. We, we, we will follow you. We will be your servants. We will serve you. Just help us out a little bit. Lighten the load. Now, it is interesting. It's telling that they could have said in that moment the more important thing, which was, hey, Solomon did great for a little while, but remember his mistakes where he started worshiping all these other gods? Don't do that and give us a break. You know, that would have been better, but they didn't. They just asked for the break. But that was a reasonable request. And King Rehoboam's initial response seemed pretty wise. He's going to take a minute to think about it. He says, come back in three days and I'll give you my answer. He comes at that, after, in that three-day break, he, he consults with uh, two different groups of advisors. The first are the geezers, I mean the old men <laughs> that he asked. The word, the word is actually elders, so there is a contrast here between their ages but it's more about their wisdom than their age. I'm not just saying that because I'm a young guy, uh, but there is some truth that with age often comes wisdom, but not always, not always. So the point is that this first group, they are elders and they served King Solomon. They served alongside the wisest man who's ever lived. So this will be a group that has some experience. The second group of people it says are, are people that grew up with him, with King Rehoboam. So these are his buddies. These are the guys who have lived with the silver spoon in their mouths under King Solomon's reign and had everything like they wanted. Those are his two groups of advisors. The first group says, you should listen to the voice of the people. If you will serve them, they will serve you and you will, be a great, you will have a great start to your kingdom. The second group says, no way. Make it harder, not easier. Make, show your strength as king. You are king after all, so exert your authority. Put them in their place and put them back to work. Those are the two options before King Rehoboam. And that brings us, I think, to an important connection. At Christmas, we remember how Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Rehoboam had two sets of counselors. He had a choice and many times we have choices like this too. Maybe they're not always as clear as this one. We, we know how the story ends. You just heard how it ends. It doesn't go well for his bad choice. So it may not always be clear, but we need the same uh, wisdom that Rehoboam needed in that moment, which is this. We need to listen to godly counselors. Listen to godly counselors. When you have competing advice, when questions come at you and you've got a couple different, different ways you could go, who do you listen to? Who's, who's, who has your ear? Whose voice do you pay attention to? 
We're overloaded nowadays with content from, from online sources and all kinds of voices we can listen. You can Google it and ChatGBT can tell you all kinds of different things that you should or shouldn't do, I'm sure. There's news and media constantly giving you a spin on current events and popular trends and nutrition and parenting and financial things. You can look all over the place and get a hundred different answers to every ten questions, right? In addition to that, we've all got friends and family and people who love us and co-workers that all kind of have their thoughts and their opinions. And so you could go to any ten group, ten people, and you could again get another hundred set of answers and possibilities of where you can go. Right now, I'm talking to you about how you should live. You've got Bible study teachers. You've got discipleship group leaders. You've got all kinds of people who are speaking into your life. Who do you listen to? Who are the counselors in your life? What advice do you take? What influences you? Who do you allow to speak into your life? One of the lies we believe, especially as we age, is we don't need anybody. i got it all figured out. I don't need advisors. I don't actually listen to anybody. I make my own path. The reality is all of us have influences. All of us from our past and present and people around us, we, we, we get influenced. The question is not whether we do, it's who do we let influence us? What voices are speaking into our lives? There are, the word uh, counsel appears five times in 1 Kings 12, just between verses 6 and 14. So that is clearly the, the main idea of this section. What counsel is he going to listen to? Is Rehoboam going to listen to? What counsel do we listen to? There are plenty of bad reasons to take somebody's counsel. If their counsel is primarily about building up your ego or puffing you up, it's not going to be good advice. If the counsel is primarily just about what makes you look good or, or maybe what makes you comfortable, what, avoids, what, what pathway avoids the most amount of suffering and leaves you the most comfortable? What's, what's the best financial thing just for you? That, whatever that is, that's the way we're going to go. Or, or what, what can help you win at all costs? Doesn't matter what gets left in your way. We can come up with counsel that's motivated by all kinds of less than good things, bad things even. But what is good counsel? Good counsel is godly counsel. What, what the influences we want to have are people who are godly. Godly counsel. Rather than simply asking what builds me up or what keeps me comfortable or what makes me the most money, we should be asking what's the godly choice here? What's the godly choice? Who are you following and are they following Christ? I know Christmas hasn't happened, so it's not New Year's yet, but you got to be thinking along. I hear January's coming soon. New Year's is coming. Some things that are going on in your life. What, what influences in the new year are you going to let be, be there. Is the Bible one of your influences? Are, are Bible teachers one of your influences? Are you regularly under the preaching of the Word? Are you letting godly things influence your life? Who influences you? Who teaches you? Who instructs you? But then the next question might be, how do I know that advice they're giving really is godly? What, what really makes it godly? There are plenty of different ways we could distinguish that. If it's based on the Bible or not, that's pretty clear. If it's biblical, it's going to be good advice. If it's not biblical, it's not. What about maybe that we look at the life and the outcome, the fruit of somebody's life as they're giving you advice. But there's one clear criteria here in 1 Kings chapter 12 that, it, that distinguishes the good counselors from the bad. And it's not just their age, although that's important. What is it that distinguishes the good advice from the bad advice? I think the clear distinction is this. The difference between the wise and godly counsel of the older group 
is that they were saying you should be a servant to the people. Whereas the younger people were saying you should just serve yourself. Wise and godly leaders are servants, not tyrants. Wise and godly leaders are servants, not tyrants. The people had said in verse 4, that was the, the emphasis of their, the, their request. They said, our service under King Solomon was hard and heavy. If you will lighten our service, we will be in your service. We will be your servants. They make an offer. Serve us. Help us. And we will serve you. We'll gladly serve you. And the elders, when they come, the older group, when they come and they give advice, that again is the emphasis of their advice. They say, yes, king, if you're willing to be a servant first, then your people will turn and serve you in return. It's going to require a step of humility. You're going to have to put their needs before your own. If they're doing less, then you're going to build less walls. It's not going to go as quickly. It's going to feel like a sacrifice to make to, to not have them working as hard. But they're telling him it's going to pay off in the long run. You'd rather have a group of people who are happy and are willing to, to be a participant in the kingdom to serve you than a people who are upset. Whereas the younger generation say, no, 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 show your power, show your strength. Don't look weak. Make them work harder, not less. Don't just threaten them with regular whips. Threaten them with scorpions. I had to look into that. Is he literally carrying around scorpions? Apparently there was some kind of whip that had some kind of metal tip to it that was like a, a scorpion tip. That made more sense to me. I was confused by that. But he's saying, they were telling him, act like the king that you are. Take charge. They're not serving you. You're not serving them. They're serving you. Just serve yourself. Be a tyrant. Tell them what to do. Rehoboam went with the second choice, the younger counselors, and told them to work harder, not any easier. And this scene reminds us of another time in the Old Testament of a king making a similar decision. Back in Exodus chapter 5, Aaron and Moses come before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, for the very first time. And he says, all, all, the, all the Israelites that are among your people, please let us leave outside your country for a little while to go and worship. And Pharaoh says, apparently you aren't having enough work to do if you're asking to go and worship, if you're asking for a break, I'll tell you what, keep making all the bricks like I've demanded of you, but now I'm not even going to give you straw. You've got to go gather your own straw, but you've got to make the same number of bricks. Pharaoh makes their work harder, not easier, when they ask to go and worship. But you know how the story of Pharaoh ends? Not good for Pharaoh. He has to suffer ten plagues, including the loss of his own son, and then all those people, probably two million people, leave Egypt forever, and they're helping them go because they're so terrified of them. Trying to beat people down didn't work for Pharaoh, and it's not going to work for Rehoboam either. Just as the heavy hand of, Rehob of Pharaoh eventually cost him his control, so it did for Rehoboam. Rehoboam announced his decision, and, Im and immediately the people rebelled. Immediately the people said, this isn't our king. He doesn't want us, and we don't want him. Rehoboam sends out a taskmaster, kind of a slave driver, to tell him to get back to work. And when he goes out there, they kill him. This is just a few days, maybe a week into his reign, and things are not looking good for Rehoboam. Rehoboam hops on his chariot as fast as he can get his horses to carry him, and he flees New York to his New York City, Shechem, to fly, to, to drive his horses as fast as he can back 
to the safety and the comfort of his D.C., his Jerusalem, with his tail between his legs because he is worried about what's about to happen. Sure enough, the people in the north were so upset, they decided Rehoboam really isn't their king. They find another guy, Jeroboam, and make him king. And there now goes from being one nation of 12 tribes to two nations, one with Rehoboam at the bottom, just with, with only two tribes. Did I say that for a second? Anyway, 12, 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. This had, there were lots of factors that go into this, but the final straw was an arrogant king who thought he could rule with a mighty hand. He thought in his pride and his strength, he could just demand people follow him and ends up losing oh, more than half of the kingdom. What Rehoboam failed to understand is that true leadership cannot be demanded. True leadership is one. People's hearts are not demanded to change. People's hearts are wooed when they see service, when they see love, when they see their love, they are changed. For a little while, people's feet can be demanded. You can force people into following you with their feet, but you cannot force people into following you with their hearts. True leadership is wooed. It is loved. It's led with, from the heart. Rehoboam uh, may have been appointed and declared as king, but to keep that royal status for the kingdom to flourish, he had to show he had the best interest of the people in mind. If he was only about himself, the people would let him know this isn't going to work. And that's exactly what happened. Wise and godly leaders are servants, not tyrants. Godly leadership is using your position, your influence, your money, your gifts, whatever you have in service of others, not in service of self. Oftentimes when people know you truly love them, you truly care about them, you truly want, want what's best for them, not just for yourself, they actually end up serving you. They love you. It becomes reciprocal and better for you in the long run. But if you're just serving yourself, then it leads to a separation. The people reject Rehoboam, and so often that's what happens in leadership. If you serve yourself, people get rejected. What, what positions of authority or leadership do you have? Oftentimes people don't realize just how many people are watching them, how many people are, are looking up to you. Just ask my four-year-old, who's got an 18-month-old, watching her every move right now. She's a leader at four in my household. Or my nine-year-old, who's got three young sets of eyes looking up to her. You may not know how much influence you have, but people watch and people learn from you, even if you don't have a title. Some of you do have the title of boss or leader or teacher. You are leading people wherever you are, and if you are a parent, you are a leader Big time, what are you doing with your position of authority? What are you using your influence for? Is it primarily for yourself or is it in service of and in love for other people? Whether you know it or not, somebody is watching. What will you do with those watching eyes? Will you ignore those eyes? Will you just act like they're not there? Or will you steward that opportunity for good? To serve them, to love them to lead them like God calls us to lead. God calls us to be servants to those we lead because that's how He lived. In 1 Timothy 6, 15, Paul writes to Timothy that Jesus is He who is blessed and only, the only, is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Multiple times that title is used. King, and king, king of kings and Lord of lords. That's who Jesus is. 
In his whole earthly ministry, he had all kinds of eyes watching him, wondering how is he going to lead? He's come here as the king of the Jews. How is the king of the Jews going to use his position and his authority? He's king. He's the Lord. He is the ruler. And if anybody, if anybody had the, the, the authority to say, follow me, I don't care whether you like it or not, get behind us, let's go, it would be King Jesus. But at Christmas, we celebrate how he came into the world because it tells us about how he lived. How he entered, he didn't enter with pomp and circumstance. He didn't go to Jerusalem, the capital city. He didn't even go to New York City, to the Shechem of the world. He went to Bethlehem, a rural place. And he didn't come into the, the, the prince's crib in the palace. He came to a manger. His entrance into the world was intentionally humble because he was telling us about the kind of king, the kind of leader that he is. Jesus came in humility because that's how he was going to live. He lived as one who was humble, someone who had no place to lay his head, someone who constantly was spending time with the outcast and the sinners. He interacted with the elites but told them of the problems they had and was willing to be counted among the least of these. He loved people well. He healed them. He fed them. He taught them. He encouraged them. He spent time with people of all different ethnicities. He spent time with men and with women, which was strange in those days. He spent time with children. He loved all those around him. him. He served. He washed feet. He was willing to get dirty. He was willing to be humble. He was willing to be a servant. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And he didn't stop at just using his life as a service. He even served unto death. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus takes a, a title for himself that is a higher title than king of kings. King of kings means of all the kings in the world, they're serving this king. But the title Jesus uses in Mark chapter 10 is an even higher title than that. He calls himself the Son of Man, which seems like not a very high title, just Son of a Man's a man, right? But he's quoting Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision of this one who is like a Son of Man, but he is walking on the clouds. And the Ancient of Days, God himself, lays at the feet of the Son of, of Man, he lays down all the kingdoms of the earth and says, these are all in service of you. The Son of Man was the highest imaginable title that Jesus could have taken for himself. This is one who is like God and like man, and Daniel gives us a glimpse into that, but Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. And if anybody deserved for all the nations to bow down and worship him, it would be the Son of Man, right? In Mark chapter 10, this is what Jesus says about himself, the Son of Man. He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve. He came to be a servant. He came to give his life. Contrast that with another king at the time of Jesus' birth, which was King Herod, who was so worried about losing his power that when he heard these wise men talk about this king of the Jews who had been born, he was willing to go into that city and kill every child who was two years and younger. Jesus was laying down his life in order to get a kingdom, 
King Herod was trying to kill lives to preserve his kingdom. Jesus is still on his throne. King Herod is not. King Jesus proved his, his, his authority. He proved his place, his status, not through taking life, but by giving his life. One man, born in very humble beginnings and living only some 30-odd years on this earth, has had more influence, more power, more impact on the world than anybody else ever has. More than any other president of the United, any, any president of the United States or any other nation, more than Stalin or Hitler, Hitler or Putin or Queen Elizabeth or Winston Churchill or Gandhi or Nelson Mandela, more than Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great, even more than Elvis or Taylor Swift. <laughs> Jesus has had a greater impact. And he did it through service, through laying down his life. Not through money, not through military strength, not by being the most beautiful. He was a great teacher, but he wasn't praised just for being eloquent. What made him different is that he is the son of God and son of man who laid down everything he had in love of others. If you are, not, if you are a Christian, that means you have been served by the King of Kings. We think of our lives, and it is, in service of the King. But before you are in service of the King, you have sat down at the table and He has brought His waiter to you, King Jesus, and He has served you. He has laid down His life for you. Your entrance into the kingdom is not something you earn by being a good servant. Your entrance into the kingdom is that you have been served. You have received from God. That is how you become a part of God's kingdom is that you recognize the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of man has served you, has laid down his life for you. And if you are not a Christian, that means you haven't yet received what Christ has done for you. You haven't recognized that the Son of God who had all power, has all power and all authority was willing to lay down his life to pay for your sins. Being a Christian is receiving that service, receiving that sacrifice on your behalf and saying, yes, I believe in the one who came to serve me. Christmas is about a manger because it's telling us about a life that's humble that will lead ultimately to a cross, a sacrifice, a service. His sacrifice was for an imperfect group of people, millions of us, living and giving up his life. The one who had every right to demand submission instead won us over. He knew leadership isn't just demanded. It's won. It's wooed. And he gets that. He, gave, he, he did that for us by dying. Of all the people uh, who have been won over, we now pledge to Jesus what the nation of Israel had offered to pledge to Rehoboam. We will serve you. Because we have been served, now we want to and live because our hearts have been changed by that kind of love. We now live in service of Him. For all who've been saved by the service of Jesus, we now live to serve Him and serve others, to serve God and to love our neighbor. The way you know you've truly received the love and the service and the sacrifice of Jesus is that you love to serve and sacrifice for others. Your heart's been changed. You're no longer trying to serve yourself because you, all your needs have been met. The Son of God has served you. What more could you possibly do to serve yourself? What could you possibly add to yourself by serving yourself? We don't need it. So we share. We give. We serve. 
We lay down our lives. That's how you know somebody who, in a position of authority, is a godly leader and a wise counselor. Their needs have been met because they know Jesus. And so everything they have their whole life is in service to God and in service to others. Wise and godly leaders aren't tyrants because they don't have any needs to be met. Their needs have been met. They are servants. How are you serving the people you're leading? Who's interest do you have in mind? What are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to accomplish your name, your brand, your, your resume, your, your financial status? Or is it primarily about serving other people? There's one final aspect of the story in 1 Kings 12 that I think is worth noticing. It reminds me of the Christmas story in a little bit different way. When we read Matthew and Luke's account of Jesus' birth, there are so many moving pieces, are there not? There's angels appearing to people, and there's visions, and there's stories, and there's uh, Zechariah's mute, and there's two impossible pregnancies, one that's a virgin, one who's way past age, and you're like, all these things are going on, but perhaps the most crazy is there is a census over all the world, it says, all, uh, that uh, Caesar Augustus said that all the world should be registered. That, that's moving a whole lot of people just to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem where they need to go right? That's a lot of moving parts that God was orchestrating from heaven, looking down, contributing, leading all these things to get everything just right. And you say, well, well of course, I mean, Bethlehem, you got to be born in the city of David, fulfilling all these prophecies. Of course, the Son of God entering to the world, that's a moment where God's like on high alert, right? God's making sure everything is just right. Of course, in that moment, God is going to make everything perfect. But I'm not in the middle of Luke 2, my life isn't like Jesus coming to earth. It's not nearly that important. In fact, it's often way worse, right? Why? If God, yes, God can be in control of Luke 2, and He can move thousands of people around for a census to get all of His things accomplished. But my life isn't that way. Well, there's some good news. 1 Kings chapter 12 is also like the opposite of Luke chapter 2. Luke 2 is glorious. There are angels singing majestically. 1 Kings 12 is tragic. We're on the brink of civil war by the end of this chapter. God has a, there is a, there is a, in, in Luke chapter 2, there is a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. In 1 Kings chapter 12, there's an arrogant, prideful king running on his chariot as fast as he could go and an army chasing after him. These are opposite pictures. Surely God's in charge of Luke chapter 2, but what about 1 Kings chapter 12? 1 Kings 12, 15, we read this. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. Read one chapter before this. God said exactly what was going to happen, and it happened, just like he, he anticipated. So it is worth noticing that both in Luke chapter 2 and in 1 Kings chapter 12, the beautiful and glorious and the tragic, we can trust our sovereign God. We can trust our sovereign God. Christmas is a time of celebration and of joy and of, of great things, gifts and feasts. And I hope that your Christmas can be that way. I hope you can celebrate the good news of great joy that we celebrate at Christmas. But for some, it's a little bit more like 1 Kings chapter 12. You feel like you're on the brink of civil war in your own house, or there's grief, there's sorrow, there's anguish. Maybe it's the first one, first Christmas without a loved one, or the 20th one 
without a loved one. And you feel the brokenness of another year gone by where things just aren't quite, quite right in the world. And it is good news that our King is on the throne. And He is sovereign over all things. And He has invited you to come to His table. He has invited you to receive the service of the King. He has come and given His life as a servant, as a ransom for us. And He is in control over the good and over the bad. You can trust Him enough to use whatever authority, whatever experience, whatever you have. Say, this is all for you, God. My good and my bad. My joy and my grief. My sorrow and my celebration. It is for you. Because you are the king, you are in control, and you have done it all. Wise and godly leaders are servants. It truly is better to give than receive. That's what Christ teaches us at Christmas. Who, who are you serving this Christmas? How are you loving other people? Where are you prone to only love yourself? How might God be calling you instead to love others? Listen to godly counsel, and godly counsel is this. Wise and godly leaders are servants. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you gave up a whole lot to come and to serve us. We recognize we surely did not deserve that. We did not deserve to be served, but you gave it all. You gave your life in service of us. Father, when we look back to Old Testament kings, we, we see ourselves more than we like to admit. In a king that was prideful, that was self-serving, a king who was arrogant and just out for his own, his own name. Father, we confess that's where we are so often. And so, Lord, today, as we come to your word, may we, be, may we be reminded that we serve a greater name, the name of Jesus, a much greater name than our own. God, may our lives be in service to you because we have received your service to us. Lord, as we celebrate Christmas this coming week, God, we, we are amazed that you would come to be a child of all things, humble and needy. And you came to live among us, to know what this is like, to, to be able to say that, that you, you, you experienced it all and so that you could save us. May we worship you this week and may we live for your glory above all. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. During our closing song, if you want to come pray at the altar, come pray with me, I pray that you'll do that. I pray you respond in faith. Let's stand and sing.